Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. It's been a couple of weeks since I've said that, and I'm glad that I remember it. I think it's now ingrained down in the deep folds of my gray matter. Speaking of gray matter, I'm here with my colleague, Dr. Gray Sutanto, who is professor of systematic theology and at the end of the day, professor of philosophy here at RTS Washington. Welcome, Gray. It's great to be back here with you, Scott. Uh, I'm Scott Redd. I'm professor of Old Testament and president here of this campus. And so this is the summertime when we're kind of reduced down to a little bit smaller crowd than usual. We get to hang out and chat in the hallways. And then sometimes we take that conversation into the studio and sit down and continue the conversation together. So it's just Gray and I speaking today. And we're going to answer a listener question that came in from Trevor, an assistant pastor down in Columbia, South Carolina. Trevor is uh, in the PCA, and that actually tells us something about you, Trevor, so we can tailor our answer to your, your PCA context. But you asked the question, how can you continue to develop your ability to preach and teach the Old Testament in the ministry of the church. And the reason why I say being a PCA person helps us is uh, because we know that you then went to seminary. If you're an ordained pastor, it means you've been to a seminary. It means you've probably learned the languages um, and uh, the Hebrew and Greek uh, of the scriptures. And so you've got that as part of your tool belt. And that right there is a big part of getting at, uh, uh, you know, having a solid foundation for teaching and preaching the Old Testament. So thanks for the question. I've got a, I'll start off since I'm the Old Testament guy in the room, but then I'd like Dr. Sutanto to kind of come in from a philosophy theology point of view and, and, and fold in his expertise into answering the question as well. One thing I would say, and I usually say, first of all, if you have the languages, if you have Hebrew and you're studying the Old Testament uh, and you're wanting to preach the Old Testament more deeply, I would actually argue, keep developing your understanding of Hebrew. This is not just a kind of initiation rite, you know, that we put seminary students through. It's not just to say, oh, you learned the Hebrew. Um, I'll tell you, the deeper your engagement of the Hebrew text, I would argue the deeper your sermons will be and the better your application will be. Um, there's something that happens when you're doing that work of translation that I find a lot of times my best illustrations, my best explanations of the biblical text come from my early work with the Hebrew of the text. And so I would encourage you, keep up your Hebrew. And you might say, well, how do I do that? Well, if you've let it drop, and I know a lot of people do, I, I hear this from pastors. They're like, you know, I really didn't pick up Hebrew after I finished Hebrew 3 exegesis at seminary. What do I do? I'd say, go pick up a grammar and start working through it again. You may find that it actually comes back to you more quickly than you thought. We've got a, a bunch of great grammars, um, actually three RTS faculty members. Uh, Miles Van Pelt has a Hebrew grammar that's very user-friendly. So does Mark Futata. That's the one that I use in our Hebrew classes and I learned as well. Uh, and so does Bill Fullerlove has one that's published by uh, Presbyterian and Reformed Publishers. Also a very good, very up-to-date intro grammar. Uh, it may even make sense to get a grammar that's not the one that you studied in seminary, and that way you'll be learning it from a slightly different perspective. However, this is what I would do. I would say don't just go back to grammars. 
but sit down and read the Hebrew Bible every day. Find time. And I would even say this. This is I'm going off of what my prof told me, Bruce Walke. He said, at least read it for five minutes. Don't don't sit down and say, I'm going to try to read 20 verses or something like that. Sit down, start your clock and with a good lexicon at hand and start reading and read for five minutes. And the first time you do it, guess what? You're going to barely get through three words. And hopefully the 10th time you do it, you'll get through a verse. And the 20th time you'll do it, you'll be reading relatively smoothly. Okay. And pick a book like Deuteronomy or, or Samuel or Judges, you know, a book that's relatively standard biblical Hebrew. And I'll tell you, it'll come back to you when you're reading it in context. You're going to find yourself moving a lot more quickly and getting a lot more agile in your handling of the Hebrew text. So that's a big thing. I would say that one of the best things you can do is read the Old Testament in Hebrew and, hey, go ahead and learn Aramaic. Uh, Miles Van Pelt has a good intro to Aramaic. Um, we're teaching an Aramaic course here uh, this this fall. Um, learn Aramaic, and that way you can dive into Daniel and those parts of Ezra, Nehemiah, and uh, even in Jeremiah, there's a little Aramaic. Actually, even in Genesis, there's a real little Aramaic. There's there's two words. Um, but you can you can dive into those texts, and that'll again give you just a deeper engagement with the biblical text. Okay, so that's part one. That's kind of getting into the weeds of your biblical study. Um, I think the number one thing you can do is get more ver better versed in Hebrew and, and more agile in using it. The second thing that you can do is sit down with some good biblical theologies, whether you're sitting down with Voss or O. Palmer Robertson or um, our, our Covenant Theology book that the RTS faculty put out uh, as a compendium. And let those be guides to you as you're reading the whole of the Old Testament text. One thing I think students do with the Old Testament, it's, there's actually whole, whole interpretive methods that are built around this, is that they tend to divide up the text so much that it's hard to see the connections between the biblical text. So, um, you know, particularly if you were raised in a dispensationalist setting, um, you're going to actually not be surprised by that. You're going to think, okay, yeah, yeah, this is the Bible supposed to not make sense. It's supposed to be very divided up and somewhat atomistic. And you may miss the, the big overarching narratives and the themes that keep coming up. Themes like sanctuary of the Lord, whether that's the garden or the land or the tabernacle or the temple or Christ's body or the church itself or the whole world and the new heavens and new earth, right? You see that theme sanctuary, the place where God exists with his people and it's stretched throughout the whole of the text. Or how about the need for a king? You know, Adam and Eve are told to subdue and have dominion over the earth. That's kingly language. And that's extended out to the kings of Israel, into Christ, into the church. And then finally, again, in the new heavens and new earth, uh, where God reigns supreme over the face of the whole earth. But look for those big overarching themes. There's actually, a, you know, a limited number. There's a finite number of these themes. It's, they're, they're not myriad. Okay. And if you you know, start with creation, kingship, temple, word or prophecy, revelation, uh, warrior, God is a warrior, bringing order out of chaos. That's kind of a subcategory of the creation theme. You know, there's really a handful of these themes. And if you pick them up, you realize they start in Genesis. 
they're, they're, they're like big lobbed baseballs. You know, they get hit in Genesis off the bat and they have a trajectory that they follow through the whole of redemptive history and finally land in the book of Revelation. And if you find yourself being aware and able to recognize those themes, okay, streams flowing in the desert, that's a creation theme right? God dwelling with his people, that sanctuary theme. As long as you can start to recognize those themes, you're going to see that the Old Testament and the New Testament are really telling the same story. And it's going to draw, it's going to enrich and enliven your preaching, your Christ-centered preaching in a way that goes beyond just finding out, for instance, you know, the Old Testament tells us to do something. Uh, we can't do it. Jesus does it for us. You know, that's kind of like the the basic, and that's not wrong. But if that's all you're preaching, then your people are not getting the whole counsel of God. They're not hearing how God is a king, or Jesus is a king, or Jesus is a prophet, or Jesus is the author of new creation, or Jesus is the wiser sage than Solomon, you know, wisdom personified. All, all of those things, you're missing the richness of who Christ is in the Old Testament. However, and you know, mark my words, if you do this, if you if you get uh, if you get a deep engagement with the Hebrew text and you begin to recognize those biblical theological themes and you can see them in the scripture. And by the way, these aren't magic. You know, the prophets are aware of them too. They're using them and, and, and articulating them as well. This is very much um, natural. You know, this is God speaking through regular humans and using themes. But if you be, can become well-versed in those, you're preaching Christ on Sunday morning and you're teaching your people to read the Bible as a text that speaks to Christ is going to be so much richer and so much more in depth and it's going to sat, be more satisfying for your congregation because you're going to be speaking something that they already sense is true, which is that God's word is deep and varied and um, in a diverse collage that leads us to the worship of the triune God. So th those would be kind of my beginning tips. Uh, I've got a whole lot of others. Find good commentaries. Commit yourself to reading good commentaries. You know, you can still find good commentary recommendations. And if you're interested, um, listen to the podcast that we do on individual books. We'll often mention the commentaries that we think are the best for that book. And that will give you a good, a good guide, someone to walk with you as you're reading a text or preaching through a text. So I'd kind of add that on the end, but there it is. I don't think there's actually a whole lot you need to do beyond that. Uh, if you start there, you're going to be in a good place as you're delving into the Old Testament text. Now, that's a biblical theologian talking. So now Dr. Sutanta has been sitting patiently by, shaking his head and ringing, you know, shaking his fist at me as I speak. He's now going to speak. He's going to give us the right answer. Uh, in other words, from a systematic theological, philosophical point of view, what are the tools that you need to bring? Uh, and I think we can say to the Old Testament specifically, but in generally, to, generally to the Bible, what are the tools that you need to bring in order to read it and teach it well? Well, I don't know about shaking my head and shaking my <laughs> fist and all that, but uh, we all know that systematic theology is the queen of the theological sciences, after all. <laughs> there it is. Uh, no, we're, we're, we're kidding. That was a wonderful statement there. I would say in terms of just if you're in pastoral ministry, you know, you've got a limited amount of time. And um, the, those two uh, pieces of advice that Dr. Scott read there had just mentioned to you is really, really worth your time to consider. Uh, deepen yourself into the languages and really just refresh yourself in terms of the whole scope of redemptive history and use all of that. Uh, use the whole counsel of God in your preaching because the people of God would definitely benefit from that. And, and you'd be surprised at how much you've forgotten 
you'd be surprised of how much you took for granted. And I think by by taking a look at those biblical theological works, you're realizing now that, oh, wow, okay, those things that I learned in seminary can actually still help me here today. But here, here's one thing perhaps I would say. Um, sometimes it doesn't happen that way. Sometimes when you take a look at these biblical theological texts, you're thinking to yourself, but I already know this. I, I remember studying for the exam for this, or I remember that in this in, in seminary classes, this, this used to hit me because it was profound. But now I've been in the PCA for too long. You've been in the OPC for too long or whatever else. And you're thinking to yourself, uh, everybody takes this for granted, right? Everybody knows this is what uh, um, redundant history is all about. Everybody knows the location of the book of Judges within the Old Testament and, and the, the kind of role that it plays within the story. So what do you do if you're kind of uh, just feeling dry about it and you're, not, you're no longer feeling interested? Well, sometimes when I, when I feel that way, what I end up doing is I would pick up... Um, a, a commentary from either a critical scholar or from a theologian of a different perspective. And I would really reconsider my own views in light of my reading of that alternative perspective, right? So you are very used to reading the Bible in terms of that redemptive historical lens and that Christological, Christocentric focus. But, but maybe pick up a, a dispensationalist uh, commentary, yeah. right? you know, pick up a Charles Ryrie from the past, something like that. Or if you want to go a little bit more high octane direction, uh, pick up a Bardian scholar on the Old Testament passages, right? Uh, pick up someone like a Reverend Childs, who was very much influenced by Karl Barth. Mm -hmm. um, or pick up someone like Christopher Seitz on the Minor Prophets. And then, and then realize that they are locating these figures in a very different direction. That they would argue that redemptive history is not the best way to read the Old Testament. And that they would argue that uh, by even calling it the Old Testament, you're, you're already misreading it because it should be called the First Testament rather than the Old Testament. Old Testament sounds like you have a progressive hermeneutic and that you, you want to superimpose New Testament meanings upon the, the text or something like that. And by reading these, these uh, authors, you're realizing that you, you find yourself on the defensive at first. You find yourself that, that you have to defend your view. Um, uh, in response to these alternative approaches and maybe you realize you don't know how to and then maybe you then realize you didn't know these passages and your theology as well as you, as you once thought. So that would rejuvenate your need to, to find a way to vindicate your own position once again. And secondly, you might be learning something about the text that you might find surprising. And so when I do that, I find myself refreshed. I, I find myself reminded, oh, here's why I am reformed. Here's why I found the original readings persuasive. I didn't just come to these readings because I was taught them, but because I, I, I'm, I'm convicted that this is the best way to read the Bible, um, even as I'm learning from these alternative approaches. And I think secondly, don't forget that um, the best theologians of the past wrote commentaries. So, um, or even, even when they didn't write commentaries, they wrote sections that, that comment on large portions of scripture in their theological texts. So if you pick up Augustine's Confessions, the last four books is, a, is basically a theological commentary on passages from the book of Genesis, the opening of Genesis. If you pick up his uh, City of God, um, you'll have lengthy passages um, that comment on, on throughout the whole of the Old Testament. You will find him commenting on the book of Genesis, the prophets, all the way to, to the book of Revelation to trace out the journey of the citizens of the City of God. And remember that Aquinas has wonderful commentaries on, say, the book of John. And so, so and when you're reading these ancient and medieval commentators, or even your reformed commentators like Calvin, uh, you're realizing that they're also reading the Bible in a very different way. For them, right, the Bible is about 
a theological subject matter. So that when you're reading, say, John 1.9 by an Aquinas or by a Bonaventure, John 1.9, the, the, the true light, which is coming to enlighten every man, is not just about Jesus coming to uh, the Israelites in a particular historical context, but it's actually about how the word, the Logos, has primordially illumined every person, either by giving them the light of reason or by actually attending the acts of reason. And you're thinking to yourself, how in the world did they get that kind of reading? Well, it's because of a, a, of a doctrine that they've traced out through scripture on the way in which God illumines his people. So you might find that the Old Testament text that you've taken for granted, that say Genesis 1 is just about the days of creation or something like that, will be read in light of very different doctrines and it will be used to support very different doctrines than, than what you're used to. And that would shock you out of your, um, uh, your the way in which you've read the Bible and, and the way in which you've taken it for granted. It will shock you out of presumed views that you, you thought you knew what the Bible was talking about, but suddenly you realize you really didn't know. So that would be my my overarching zoomed out perspective. I would say that's that's excellent. And, and I realize as you're saying, you're giving part two after after you figured out the Hebrew and the themes. This is how you really develop, and that's that's particularly suitable for someone I, I suspect like Trevor, who's learned Hebrew. They've had a good redemptive historical training in seminary, and you're absolutely right. I remember at the end of seminary, as I was leaving, I was doing something a lot of seminarians do. I was buying a bunch of commentaries. I was like, now I need to fill out my pastoral. Um, my pastoral library. And I remember I was pulling out, I, I forget, I think it was from the Hermeneus series. I think it was Zimmerly's commentary on Ezekiel. And I remember a very well-meaning seminary colleague, brother, this was not a faculty member, it was a student, came and he said to me, he said, you know, friend, friend, I don't know if you realize that is a, that is a critical commentary. You, know, you shouldn't be reading that. And I realized at the time, you know, I found, I found myself, as you said, when I'm reading outside of my tradition, whether it's, I mean, dispensationalist and Bardian, that's pretty, that's still pretty close. They still kind of feel, oh, yeah. <laughs> they feel like me. You get into some of these critical, you know, um, positions where really it's just taking the text apart. You're not, you're not trust, you know, you're not relying on any of the text claims about authorship or composition or historicity. Um, I found that often it was reading those commentaries that really got me thinking about the text in a new way. And not that they were convincing me of their argument per se, but that they were making me think critically about my argument. And the thing that I had accepted as kind of the obvious plain reading or something like that, I realized, no, this is not necessarily the plain reading. Let me sit back and, and deal with some of, those issues, some of those issues. So I would encourage you in that as you get more comfortable and well-formed in your own tradition, right? As, as Grace said, I th that's, that's, indispensable is to go out and read people outside of your tradition. You will even start to find like, you know what the evangelical is going to say <laughs> in his commentary mm. or her commentary. But, um, you know, you need to get outside of that to kind of stretch yourself a little bit and, and see your blind spots. And that's absolutely, that's great advice. Absolutely. Well, that's the beginning of an answer, Trevor. And uh, let us encourage you and others to post follow-up questions. If you have them, we love to answer questions in this forum and another thing I would actually add to that before I go is, you know, even if you've gone to seminary, if you haven't, go to seminary, go sit down with other men and women who are studying God's word in this way and develop in a learning community. Um, if you've gone to seminary and you say, I, I can't spend the money for those credits again, I've already done it all. We get it, but you can still audit classes. 
And I would check out the offerings online for RTS if you're not near a seminary. And if you are near a seminary, uh, think about auditing classes. Um, I audit classes all the time, just lest you think, well, no, I've already graduated. What good will it be for me? Uh, I'm telling you, as somebody who lives in the seminary world, I love to go sit in on colleagues' classes and hear how they approach issues. It always sharpens me. It always deepens me. The questions and the conversations that come up always open up new avenues. And so I'd encourage you in that too. Um, if you're interested in knowing more about RTS, you can go to our website, rts.edu. And if you're interested in RTS Washington, go to rts.edu forward slash Washington. You can find links in the show notes. And you can also find a link to where you can ask questions. So we'd love to hear from you. Please send us any questions you might have or comments, and we'll respond to them in future episodes. So we look forward to being together again uh, as the summer continues on. I look forward to being with you all again next week. Until then, take care. Take care.